Hello and welcome to Shakes Pod, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's podcast. I'm Angie Higgins, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's artistic director. In the spirit of Silicon Valley Shakespeare's motto, to innovate, illuminate, and inspire, our podcast brings you a mix of behind-the-scenes interviews, performances, and exploration into the weird and wonderful world of Shakespeare. In honor of our upcoming production of Shylock, co-produced with the Tabard Theatre Company, on today's episode, SVS resident dramaturge Dal Picado dives into the history of the city of Venice and its crucial role in the plot of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. Take it away, Dal. My name is Dal Picado, and this is Bard Talk. When I was in college, for three years, I participated in a Shakespeare in performance seminar. This seminar stretched over two quarters with 10 weeks of rehearsals and then performances. It was a deep dive into one of Shakespeare's plays and there were always two casts, an A cast and a B cast. And generally you were a main character in one cast and a minor character in the other. Our rehearsals were Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. to midnight and Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to midnight. We didn't always have to be there for every hour, but depending on your part or parts, you were generally there a lot, especially if your minor characters were in different scenes than your main character. We were also responsible for our own set and costumes. So while other college students were out partying, our group was generally rehearsing, having costume and set construction all-nighters in Gervet's Hall with lots of Chips Ahoy cookies, or at Caro's, snacking on fried zucchini and coffee and talking about how insane our Shakespeare professor was. Being there so much and rehearsing so long also really meant that we knew the play, both the quarto version and the folio version. And if anyone missed a line, inexcusable. It was exhausting. It was frustrating. And it was some of the best time I had in college. The experience changed my life. But when I say we talked about how insane our Shakespeare professor was, I say it with loving, slightly exaggerated fondness, but I have got stories. And the one I wish to share with you today is about The Merchant of Venice. Our professor's goal for every production we did was to solve the mystery of the play. The first play we did was Love's Labor's Lost, a chatty comedy. And during the rehearsals, our professor solved that the play was actually a tragedy and that the news of the death of the King of France at the end of the play actually signaled the death of the lover's chances. And I, as Catherine, one of the princess's ladies in waiting, left the stage in hysterical tears while a servant in a death mask stood above watching everyone exit. Cheerful. The second play we did was A Midsummer Night's Dream, one of Shakespeare's most famous comedies, right? You can't go wrong with the play within the play. Well, our professor also solved this play and again, the play within the play was actually a tragedy with a hysterical Thisbe weeping loudly over the death of Bottom. The fairy kingdom was also completely at war and as Titania's, my double and I were physically thrown across the stage nightly by Oberon and had bruises that lasted for weeks. In our third year, my senior year in college, our professor announced that we would be conquering the merchant of Venice. We were excited. He said the mystery he wanted to solve 
was if the play was actually anti-Semitic or not. And we were electrified. Being controversial college students, this was material we wanted to dive into. We had a variety of religions represented in our group and everyone went to Caro's that night and discussed what we thought and how we thought our professor would proceed. We were excited. For the next meeting, we all assembled, ready to receive our parts and dig in, only to have our professor arrive and announce that we would no longer be doing Merchant of Venice. We would be doing Taming of the Shrew. A stunned silence fell on our group. We looked at each other in disbelief. What had happened? Had the university heard about what he wanted to do and made him change? Had a backer? Our professor was generally not one to be cowed by the establishment. He loved to tell us about the time he got arrested during some university riots. Finally, one of our group interrupted his lecture on Taming of the Shrew and asked him, what happened? Why aren't we doing Merchant anymore? I will never forget this next moment. I will remember it on my deathbed. He looked at us all, took off the Greek fishing hat that he wore every single day, smoothed back his long white hair, looked at us all and said, I was going over the text again last night and I realized that we can't do this play without a live monkey. As you can well imagine, another stunned silence fell over us all and we just stared at him and then at each other had we heard him right? A live monkey? What on earth did you need a live monkey in Merchant of Venice for? Well, our professor was happy to tell us. In act three, scene one, Tubal is talking to Shylock. Jessica, Shylock's daughter, has stolen Shylock's money and has been spending it disrespectfully on the Rialto. Tubal tells Shylock about a ring Jessica took from Shylock that she exchanges for a monkey. Okay. One of us confusedly asked, since Jessica purchases the monkey off stage, couldn't we just do without the monkey? That was apparently the wrong question to ask as our professor then went on a long and angry tirade about how Shylock needs to actually see the monkey in order to really feel the depth of Jessica's betrayal. The actors need to see the monkey. The audience needs to see the monkey. And this lecture ended with him pounding his fists on the desk, shouting, we've got to have a live monkey at the top of his lungs while 30 college students stared at him in speechless disbelief. Apparently, we had to have a live monkey. Most of us were just satisfied moving on to Taming of the Shrew, which also had some good discussion topics and thankfully no monkeys, but some students dropped out. They really wanted to dig into Merchant and I don't blame them. To this day, I still wonder if the monkey was really the issue, but you've heard how I've described my professor in just one story. There are so many more and it 100% could have been the monkey. In that sadly lost deep dive into Merchant of Venice, there are many issues that we could have explored. Is Shakespeare anti-Semitic? Is Shylock a villain, a victim, or something more complex? How does Shakespeare depict Christianity? How does he depict marriage? These are all valid discussion topics when diving into this play. However, today I'd like to look at another topic. Although the title character of this play is Antonio, the merchant of the Merchant of Venice, I would like to examine the other title character of this play, the city of Venice itself. 
Shakespeare uses Venice as the backdrop for two of his plays, Merchant of Venice and Othello, the Moor of Venice. Significantly, his two plays, which focus on outsider type characters in a traditional type social environment, Venice was the perfect city for this type of human interaction. In Shakespeare's time, it was arguably the only city for this type of human interaction. Although it is widely believed that Shakespeare never left the shores of England during his lifetime and therefore never saw or experienced Venice, it was normal practice for wealthy young men during his time to embark on what was known as a grand tour of Europe, a tour of all the major cities for hands-on educational experience. Women embarked on these tours as well, though not to such an extent. Mary Shelley famously wrote Frankenstein to win a bet while on a grand tour with Percy Shelley and Lord Byron. It was the practice of authors of the day to keep journals or write novels detailing the cities they experienced on their tour. Authors as varied as Francis Bacon and Agatha Christie have written of their experiences on grand tours. Even modern comedic films like National Lampoon's European Vacation had all the makings of a grand tour guide of Europe. And you see many of the same monuments in that movie that you would read about in a 17th or 18th century grand tour travel manual. So although Shakespeare clearly couldn't enjoy the comedic stylings of Chevy Chase or Beverly D'Angelo, he still had Francis Bacon and plenty of other sources for him to find all the information he needed about the grand cities of Europe. And Venice would definitely have made that list. It's clear that Shakespeare learned a lot about Venice. He knew about the Rialto, where commerce and trading took place. He knew of the city's reputation for justice. He knew about the multiculturalism. Heck, he even named one of his characters, Lancelot Gabo, after the Venetian good luck charm, Il Gabo de Rialto, the hunchback of the Rialto. There was clearly plenty of information to be had if one wanted to find it. In the 16th century, Venice was in a very real sense, one of the capitals of Europe. It was exciting, a center for arts and music. It was a huge center of commerce and wealth, a place where all trade routes met and merged. And due to that, it was a mix of races, religions and diverse cultures living close together in a city made up of tiny islands. It acted as a gateway to Europe and the Venetian army protected Europe from invasion by the Turks on one hand, while Venetian business traded with them as allies on the other. It was a complex organism and arguably the only city where Merchant of Venice could have taken place for three reasons. One, Venice was a global city for trade and commerce. Two, Venice allowed the Jewish people to make a permanent home and living in the city. And three, Venice was a center for international law and justice. Let's start with reason one. Venice was the center of trade and commerce and Shakespeare certainly portrays the city as such. Although the play's depiction of Venice is certainly rooted in historical reality, from the 15th century, Venice was the dominant seaport which had nearly unlimited access to Mediterranean and Eastern trade and established itself as a multicultural republic. As a multicultural republic, merchants from around the world would come to Venice and trade in and out of the city to make their fortunes, including Antonio, Shakespeare's titular merchant whose fortunes are tied up in many seabound trading ships. We can see the emphasis on commerce even in the language that Antonio speaks. In the first scene when his friend Bassanio wants to unburden himself of a secret, Antonio answers, I pray you, good Bassanio, let me know it. 
And if it stand as you yourself still do within the eye of honor, be assured my purse, my person, my extremist means lie all unlocked to your occasion. Antonio equates himself directly with his purse here. When Bassanio goes on deriding himself for all the money he's already borrowed from Antonio, Antonio replies, you know me well and hear and spend but time to wind about my love with circumstance. And out of doubt, you do me now more wrong in making question of my uttermost than if you had made waste of all I have. Again, Shakespeare uses words like spend and waste to emphasize the commercial nature of Antonio's language and his character as a merchant in Venice. At this moment in the play, we discover that Antonio has no money to give Bassanio to woo the lovely Nerissa as it is all tied up in his sea-bound trade. This would have been fairly common for merchants at this time as Venetian trade was so profitable that you could be guaranteed to greatly multiply your investment if your ship simply came in. As Jan Morris writes in The World of Venice, the city was a treasure box of ivory, spices, scents, apes, monkey reference, ebony, indigo, great galleons, mosaics, shining domes, rubies, and all the gorgeous commodities of Arabia, China, and the Indies. All these riches met at the trading port of Venice. Due to storms and pirates sea, there was still risk, but Antonio wisely spreads his investment across several voyages and tells us he is guaranteed a wealthy return even if one ship comes in. However, at this point in the play, all his money is tied up in his ventures. So if you need money, but have none available at the ready, how do you get money? If you commit all your money to trade and you're shipping goods through Venice all over the world, what do you do if you need cash? There are no banks. They don't appear until the 1790s. There is only one place you can go to borrow money. And that brings us to reason number two. The Jewish people were allowed to live and work in Venice and they were the only ones allowed by law to provide loans. It is generally held that Shakespeare most likely never saw a practicing Jewish person. King Edward I of England had issued an edict expelling all Jews from England in 1290, and the Alhambra decree of 1492 expelled the Jewish people from Spain, and a similar decree in Portugal expelled them in 1496. Venice, on the other hand, allowed the Jewish people to live and work in the city, initially for only two weeks at a time, but that changed when the Doge Leonardo Loredan allowed them to make a permanent home in Venice. He segregated them in an area that used to be occupied by an iron foundry in 1516, and the Venice ghetto was formed, Gito being the Venetian word for foundry. At its height, the ghetto contained 5,000 Jews from Italy, Germany, France, Spain, and the Ottoman Empire. Each group had its own practices and its own synagogue, all crammed into an acre and a quarter. Two drawbridges were used to close the ghetto at night for curfew, but the Jewish people were allowed free traverse during the day. Confinement was a burden, but it was also a chance for unparalleled cultural exchange, rich with spirituality, rich with trading relations, and rich with culture. There was a very ambivalent feeling in Venice regarding the ghetto, sort of an uneasy compromise. The city of Venice was a city of multiple religions, Christians, Jewish, Muslims, Turks, all being very wary of each other. 
Phoenician commerce needed the Jewish people for their money lending services. Christians were not allowed to lend money at interest, but money lending was one of the only profession that Jews were allowed to practice. They could be physicians, printers, glass blowers, they could buy and sell old clothes, they could be butchers, and they could borrow and loan money at interest. And the Venetians needed that to keep trade active and flowing. In return, the Jewish people got somewhere permanent to live and make a living for themselves. It was not ideal. Although they were allowed to do business on the Rialto, they had to wear garments identifying themselves as Jewish. They still dealt with extreme prejudice, but they did have a permanent place. And that quarter was their space. And in it, they created literary academies and schools. It was a Jewish place where they had rights. It wasn't all confinement and restrictions as scholar Stephen Greenblatt tells us. The Jewish people made it more. They made it home. There isn't any direct evidence that Shakespeare knew about the Jewish quarter in Venice, but we can tell from the play that he knew that Christians and Jews and Muslims could all interact. And that seems to have interested him more than any separation. He writes about Antonio spitting on Shylock on the Rialto. He writes about Lorenzo and Jessica, Shylock's daughter, falling in love. He imagines these types of interactions, interactions like money lending that could only take place in Venice and could only take place with a man of Shylock's faith. Side note, Shakespeare wasn't always completely accurate. In Merchant of Venice, Antonio borrows 3,000 ducats from Shylock for his friend Bassanio. But history tells us that generally Venetian law would have only allowed a money lender like Shylock to lend a maximum of three ducats at 5% interest. So that 3,000 ducats, complete fiction. At any rate, the contract struck between Antonio and Shylock is for 3,000 ducats. And if Antonio is unable to repay it, Shylock gets a pound of Antonio's flesh. Ridiculous contract, right? Would never hold up in a court of law, right? Well, not so much. In the play, the contract is found to be legally binding. And that brings us to reason number three. Venice was known worldwide as a city of justice. One of the most famous scenes in Merchant of Venice is the courtroom scene where dressed as a man, Portia is able to save Antonio from Shylock's knife using a loophole in the law. But how did the court even get to that point? Why was Shylock's bond not thrown out as illegal as it constitutes murder? Why wasn't it thrown out, frankly, because the Christian court technically could do so just out of prejudice? If this play had been set in London, the case would have never been brought to court merely because Shylock was Jewish. England regularly imprisoned Catholics merely because they were Catholic, and both Catholics and Protestants are Christian. Can you imagine how Shylock would have been treated? But Venice unlike practically any other city at the time, considered no group manifestly superior in the law to any other group. All people, citizens, aliens, travelers, all were equal under the law as long as they were committed to serving the state. Nowhere was that clearer to Shakespeare and his world than Venice. The head of the law in Venice was the Doge, who also heads the trial of Antonio. And if you look at his palace in Venice, there is, on one corner where all the ships come in, a statue of Adam and Eve, the serpent and the apple. Why have figures of Adam and Eve at the corner of the Doge's palace? 
There's actually another statue of Adam and Eve just inside the palace too. Why the emphasis on this creation couple? Because they were a warning. Because Venice was a city that was interested in who you were, not as a particular type of person, a Christian, a Jew, a Turk, a Catholic, a Protestant. Venice was interested in who you were as a moral human being and whether you were someone who obeyed the law. Would you choose to eat the apple if offered? If so, consequences were ready for you. The place of execution was mere yards from this statue. This was a city in which all people, Jews, Christians, Turks, Muslims, could all interact in relation to the law. This was the reason trade and commerce was able to be central to Venice because everyone could expect to be treated equally. That's a place where you want to do business because if something happens and you're from out of town, Venice is going to do right by you. And Venice does do right by Shylock, even when Bassanio tries to convince Portia, disguised as a lawyer, to ignore the law to save Antonio. And I beseech you, rest once the law to your authority. To do a great right, do a little wrong, and curb this cruel devil of his will. Portia still treats Shylock the same under Venetian law. It must not be. There is no power in Venice can alter a decree established. It will be recorded for a precedent and many an error by the same example will rush into the state. It cannot be. It is only by using the Venetian law to find a loophole in Shylock's bond that Portia is able to save Antonio. And Shakespeare had to create a loophole because Venetian law at that time was held to be the most progressive and least corruptible legal system in the world. I wanted to showcase Venice in Shakespeare's time because inevitably when discussing Merchant of Venice, questions and feelings arise. Many of those questions and feelings will be addressed if you watch our production of Shylock coming up. Why is Shylock a moneylender? Why does he have to be Jewish? Why does Portia pretend to be a lawyer? Why does Antonio have such horrible friends? How is this place supposed to make me feel? Why does Jessica even need a monkey? And why does the play take place in Venice? Many of these questions can be answered when you answer one question. Why does this play take place in Venice? Because it's the only place it could have taken place. Where else could you place a play about a commercial merchant needing to borrow money? And if he needs to borrow money, where is the only place a money lender could work? And what religion would he need to be? And therefore, where would he need to live? And where is the only place people of such differing faiths could get equal representation under the law? The answer is always Venice. It was a fascinating, unprecedented city in Shakespeare's time and continues to be so today. And we would not trade that for a wilderness of monkeys. Thank you for coming to my Bard Talk. Thank you, Doll, for another thought-provoking Bard Talk today. Coming up next on the SBS stage, Shylock by Mark Laren Young. In Shylock, a co-production with our fellow San Jose artists at the Tabard Theatre Company, a Jewish actor playing Shakespeare's notorious moneylender as a villain attracts unwelcome protests and controversy at a Shakespeare festival. 
The actor's contentious production of The Merchant of Venice has just been shut down, and Shylock presents the actor holding a talkback session to defend his work. Performed live online from Tabard's stage using a multi-camera stream, Shylock is packed with ideas of censorship, history, representation, and the nature of art. It's a testament to the power of the bard sparking rich discussion and strong opinions. Shylock will also have a limited number of in-person seating for fully vaccinated patrons. For tickets and more information, please visit www.svshakespeare.org or www.tabardtheater.org. For those craving a bit of drama in your podcast listening, SVS will be releasing abridged versions of Shakespeare classics throughout the summer. Stay tuned for Titus Andronicus in June, The Comedy of Airs in July, and Richard III in August, featuring the voice talents of artists throughout the Bay Area and beyond. And now, because no episode is complete without one, I'll hand it back to our resident dramaturge, Dal Picado, for this episode's Bard Babble. As Hamlet says in Act 2, Scene 2, words, words, words. This episode's Bard Babble is Elbow. Elbow had existed as a noun for 400 years before Shakespeare's time, but the excessively useful verb form, as in to elbow someone out of the way, is exclusively Shakespeare's. It first appears in King Lear, where Kent tells us, A sovereign shame so elbows him, his own unkindness that stripped her from his benediction, turned her to foreign casualties, gave her dear rights to his dog-hearted daughters. These things sting his mind so venomously that burning shame detains him from Cordelia. The origin of elbow actually comes from the Old English eln boga, which was a word made up of two parts, el meaning the length of the forearm and boga meaning arch. This in turn was from the Proto-Germanic word elenobugon, meaning literally bend in the forearm. Shakespeare invented over 400 words. This has been one of them. From SBS to all of our wonderful listeners out there, Thank you for joining us on this episode of Shakespeare.